0: Welcome to episode 99A of No Challenges Remaining, still on the cusp of 100, but not quite there yet. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my friend Courtney Nguyen. How do you say hello in Portuguese Courtney I don't know that
1: uh well it would be bon dia good morning if it was in the morning uh bon tarde I think it's like uh good afternoon and then uh bon noite which is pretty much where we're at right now it's about three it's a little after 3 a.m here on Sunday in Rio or Monday morning I guess uh-huh. and yeah it's been a it's been a very very fun week
0: so t- tell us about like uh let's just jump right into this tournament you were at going down to Rio First time doing anything South America golden swingish for you. What was what's the culture of tennis down there like, and what was the what was the tournament like for you in Rio? Because that's something event I know. It's new, first of all. But then I also, on top of that, just don't know much about it at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was a very educational experience being down here. I was only down here for a few days. Um, just a getting to um obviously just get a feel for what a tennis tournament in Brazil feels like. Not unlike you know last year when I took the trip to China,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: got to go see Wuhan and Beijing and Shanghai, um, and just a get a sense of the way the tournament tournament feels. In you know, kind of developing countries in a way, um, and then also get to talk to local press, get their thoughts on it, talk to f- players, former players, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I mean, just to start with, I mean, the Rio Open, it's great. I mean, it's it's held at this um, the Jockey Club of Brazil, which is in a, a neighborhood that's right next to Leblon, which is a, a very a swanky area by the beach. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty nice country club. It has to be said, um, where they build up. You know, basically the, the the main center court. Um, and for a built-up court, I was telling one of the Brazilian journalists I had dinner with tonight that it, for a built-up court, it might be the nicest built-up court I've ever seen.
0: It didn't look super flimsy on TV. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It didn't. It didn't look flimsy. It did except for like you know, obviously from the outside. Yeah, sure. You know, you can tell it's built up, but it's um, it was really nice the way that it was set up. Um, you can see the Christ the Redeemer looking down on you, not unlike the, the Petrangeli statues, although from a, a further mm-hmm. distance. But that added kind of a nice little feel to it. Um, and yeah, it's a really nice court. The grounds are are obviously quite small in terms of the the footprint of the tennis. Um, so it's really easy to get from, from court to court. It's hot. It's incredibly humid. Um, that is the toughest part, I think, about making the decision to come to play the Rio Open for the players is knowing that the conditions are going to be incredibly tough. And as I'm sure we'll talk about later, you might find yourself playing at three o'clock in the morning. So, you know, that, that that doesn't make things any easier. So, yeah, so that's the tournament itself. The fans were all super into it, especially if there was a Brazilian on court. Um, that was usually when it, it, the crowd was the most fun. Like, I didn't hop out on court too often, but I, I, when, when there was a Brazilian on court, whether it was a, a singles player or a doubles player, I was like, no, I got to go see what the crowd's going to do. So, you know, that, that still has that Brazilian passion. But uh, with respect to just tennis within Brazil, I mean, it was very, very interesting. I talked to uh, Guga Curtin, I talked to uh, the tournament director here, Louis Carvalho, also just press and and a few other people. And the whole, everybody basically said, look, I mean, tennis, sport within Brazil, obviously Brazil loves sports. We know that they love their football. They're a big sporting community. They're very into fitness and, and just being athletic. And they obviously are, are incredibly successful with that within few sports. But Within tennis, ever since Corton uh, retired, there's really kind of, I mean, Guga described it himself as kind of a dark age yeah. in Brazilian tennis after he retired and people didn't know, like, everybody's looking around, like, we need a new Guga. He said that, you know, with Bellucci and they have Tiliana Pereira on the women's side, you know, they're giving at least the Brazilians something to cheer about. One thing that I did find out here in Rio like bruno suarez is massive like that's so cool they love him like he was being chased like no other, like for for autographs and Bellucci as well. But like, yeah, the doubles players are heroes here. It's a big deal. Marcelo Mello, Alexander Paya says that you know one reporter was telling me that that he's he feels like he's more famous in Brazil than he is in Austria.
0: Yeah, not surprising. <laughs> yeah,
1: not surprising at all. So so that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, they want winners. That's what they're they're kind of looking for, and that's what they're really starved for. So one thing Louis Carvalho, the the tournament director, was telling me is, look, you know, we we don't have an idol right now we don't have a Guga but hopefully what we have is the tournament and the event itself and we bring you know the top-notch players like a Rafa like a David Ferrer here to Rio and hopefully that can kind of effectively be kind of these are my words kind of a stopgap measure I guess until they're able to find that 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 player that that gets people really really into tennis
0: and maybe the tournament will inspire some kids someday exactly i mean
1: that's exactly what what guga was saying he was like you know for the kids to to see rafa to get an autograph that means so much to them and so they're, they're everybody's really looking towards you know the olympics to in hopes of kind of jump something within brazil even just from the tennis perspective one really interesting thing that that guga told me Is that because when he was talking about how difficult to kind of uh, cultivate sport in Brazil, I kind of was quite surprised, obviously, because I was like, you guys have football. I mean, you seem like a really major sporting country, you know. And he said, yeah, but we don't actually we haven't learned how to capitalize sports. We haven't learned how to make it a money making venture. We Mm -hmm. rely too much on federation money on the government to fund things. And he said, you know, what you see here at the Rio Open, this is outside of the box. This is a privately funded, for the most part, tournament, you know, they're backed by IMG, they have massive sponsors, you know, all of their sponsors are like the top line sponsors, you know, like within each uh, business section. So Itaú, which also sponsors Miami, is the presenting sponsor of Miami. Is, is also... that how you
0: pronounce that word? Mm-hmm. I never would have gotten that right. Itaú. Itaú, yeah. Okay. Itaú. it okay. yeah. like Itau?
1: Or <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah, no, Itaú, um, they're the, the leading bank in Brazil. Uh, okay. Claro, which was the presenting sponsor for the tournament, is like the leading telecoms provider in Brazil. So they have, you know, Rolex was there. I mean, they had like a, some kind of big name sponsors that I was honestly quite surprised by. So it's, it's pretty heavily, you know, privately funded. And that's a brand new thing. And, and they're trying to kind of change the culture within, the, within Brazil, uh, been, well, with respect to tennis tournaments, but maybe even across the board to other sports where you come to the events. It's not just about what's happening on the court, but they want to make it into a full entertainment thing. Um, with exhibitions and, you know, even just the concession stands, uh, places to hang out, like to make it a fun experience for the whole day for people. And according to to, to Guga, that's a brand new thing for Brazilians. That's not something that they're used to. So they, they have high hopes for the tournament here, also the tournament in Sao Paulo as well. But the biggest concern, and everybody admits it, is what happens after the Olympics. And Guga was pretty explicit about it. He was like, you know, nobody planned for what was going to happen after I retired. And so then we had like the dark ages. Now we know that that the Olympics are coming, which is great. It's a golden time for investment in sport in Brazil. But we know that afterwards we have to we have to have a plan in place. So we need to we need to do it differently this time and actually plan for it. And whether the confidence is there that that will happen, it, it, it's a little touch and go, you know. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I found it really, really fascinating. It was definitely a learning experience for me. And the people have been great. The food's been awesome. Caipirinhas taste better in Brazil than they do when I make them at home. <laughs> so yeah, I can't, I can't complain. It's been fun.
0: Is this the Olympic venue?
1: No, it's not the Olympic venue uh, because this is a built-up site. Uh, okay. That's the country club. The Olympic venue is in um, a neighbor co- a neighborhood called Baja, which is kind of a newer neighborhood. It's, it's, um, one journalist told me that they kind of in, in Portuguese call it the end of the line in Rio okay. because it, it's kind of the end of the long stretch of beaches of Copacabana and Ipanema and Leblon, and then Baja is next. And uh, But it's where all of the Olympic venues will be. And that's also where the tennis venue will be. So the tennis venue, which is currently being constructed, the center court's like 10,000 people overall across four courts. Um, there's like seating for about 18,000, I think, is their plan. But the nice thing is, in contrast to Wimbledon, it's part of the Olympic, ve- it's near all the Olympic uh, venues.
2: Oh, good. That's, yeah, that's key.
1: Exactly. So they'll be near, the players will be near or in, if they opt to, uh, the Olympic Village. So that's quite interesting. One big question that I had going around Rio and I kept asking everybody, I was like, are you guys going to build like a transit system? Because the traffic here is brutal. And to get from the other parts of Rio to Baja, you have to drive through these like tunnels that are pretty much two lane tunnels. And Mm. on any given day, there's already ridiculous traffic. So I definitely left kind of having concerns about, not unlike I think, probably the concerns people had in Athens before okay. Athens was going to be hosting the the Olympics a few years ago. How is the city going to absorb the number of people that are going to be coming for the Olympics and how are yeah. they going to move everybody around? And that is definitely worrisome because from what I hear, no, there's not really a plan to build out a, a big subway system that can be a massive people mover. It's going to be a lot of traffic um, in terms of hotel housing, like, you know, I think I asked uh, the tournament director who happens to also be a member of the ITF committee for the tennis uh, here for the Olympics. Or sorry, the Olympic Committee. Maybe not ita Olympic Committee. Is, are there enough hotels to <laughs> accommodate all the media and tourists coming for the Olympics? And he said that they are considering uh, boats, which is oh, some, fun. yeah, which is something that Athens uh, considered. I don't know if they executed, but I know Athens heavily considered that as well, which is having basically massive yachts <laughs> on the water to uh, act as temporary hotel housing. So, so a lot of questions about the Olympic side of things <laughs> here in Rio, but uh, but at least. In the short term, with the tennis, it's it's been good. I mean, I, as from what I can tell, there's been quite a number of people that who are working with the Rio Olympics, who are also working at the tournament or worked at the tournament. So to kind of learn how what running a tennis tournament looks like. So there's some sort of like continuity of of information and knowledge and experience. So they'll have one more test run, you know, here in Rio uh, at the Rio Open next year, um, and then they are going to have a test event in December. Uh, for the tennis venue, uh, which will be just like a small national tennis tournament mm. that they'll use as a test event. So, yeah, so that's kind of the dossier on Rio, as it were. Cool.
0: Now, let's talk about the actual tennis that happened in Rio. Not the strongest fields for... It was about an average international international field, average to maybe a little below average. And the 500 field wasn't as strong or as deep as, let's say, Rotterdam uh, a couple weeks ago. But there were some... Very exciting matches that happened and some pretty big upsets. Anytime Rafael Nadal loses on clay, it's a big upset in my book.
1: Especially when he does it in a semifinal on clay.
0: Yes, ending a 12-year, 52-match semifinal winning streak, which I was totally unaware of until this week. (laughs) It's another ridiculous Nadal stat. Yeah, so let's start with Rafa, because he was the headliner there for sure. Courtney, you kept saying that you're not panicking about Rafa yet. And I'm guessing you're probably not still now, even though it's a semifinal loss, which I guess that's something. Um, <laughs> what, what did you make of his performance this week and his backwards short-sing, umpire-complaining <laughs> general, general, yeah, the whole thing? Because it was a, sort of a... Hectic sort of week for him, I guess.
1: It was a hectic week for Rafa. I mean, yeah, obviously he lost in the semifinals to Fabio Fonini, uh, losing in three sets, 7-5 in the third, I believe. I think the biggest takeaway is from his performance this week was I was just really surprised to hear him say that he was tiring um, early in that match against Fonini. Now, to be fair, he did play until three eighteen in the morning that same day. So, you know, that has to be taken into consideration. Very difficult to come back from that and fully rehydrate from a three set match and, you know, get yourself ready. But the thing that worried me a little bit about that was that we kind of also saw a similar thing in Australia that that day against check just in terms of his body, just uh, not reacting well that day so that was the only thing if 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 the smi match had never happened and rafa just kind of had a bad day after playing until three o'clock in the morning i'd be like okay and it was seven five in the third i mean it wasn't like he got blown out by by fanini or anything um and fanini played a great match but um yeah so i was a little concerned about those fatigue issues watching him play i mean it's just very evident that the confidence levels are not there he's putting so much air under the ball um he's hitting with so 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 much margin. Um, at least he was this week in Rio. Uh, the forehand again. He's not really feeling it. He he's so there's there's a lot kind of going on. Serve out of rhythm. You know, serving a lot more double faults than, than you would expect from Rafa. He kind of summed it up perfectly in his post match press conference after losing to Funini, which he said it was it was not a negative week for me. And I was like. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't a negative week. Uh, was it positive? Well, positive is you got match play and, and the guy needs matches. But yeah, it, it's kind of, I don't know, for me, kind of a, a neutral week for Rafa. Not a ton of progress made um, and a few little disappointing things. I mean, his little, I mean, what did you make of his rant with uh, Carlos Bernardes? I
0: thought that was weirdly out of nowhere because, I mean, Rafa, for those of you who didn't see, I, I might be getting, I hope fact check me on this if it's at all off but rafa was complaining about bernardez giving him time violations and he said essentially i don't want you ever umpire me again uh, because you're too tough on me on time violations
1: is that more or less right yeah that's what i understand from the translation yeah
0: yeah so first of all what
2: yeah
0: i mean Bernardes umpired the quarterfinal and nothing much before bernardez is not known as being a tough guy on time no one is as tough on Rafa on time as the rules say they should be. And so, and Rafa has been complaining about the time violation rule the whole time it's been around and during its more recent higher enforcement over the past couple of years. So I thought that was weirdly out of nowhere, especially after the whimsical backwards shorts moment against Cuevas when he came out <laughs> in the third set, Bernardo was in the chair and, Rafa told him at the back backwards shorts, and Bernardo's had this big belly laugh, and the two looked like best of friends, and then less than 24 hours later, there's a horrible, like, you're not my friend anymore, <laughs> statements being made. And I was just sort of surprised. It seemed, it seemed like a weird moment of petulance from Rafa, for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, maybe it came from frustration. I mean, obviously, it was a very frustrating match for Rafa, especially after that first set. His game just really kind of went off the rails, and Fanini was able to attack him. But, yeah, I just find it a little weird and i wasn't able to ask rafa about it because we were only allowed i was only allowed one english question and i wasn't going to waste it on that one because i needed a match quote but yeah i just found it weird to hear a player say like i don't want you chair umpire uh, umpiring any of my matches anymore because you're enforcing the rules and it makes me uncomfortable
0: <laughs> rafa's always been that way with time violations. so i mean he's always been offended that anyone ever calls
1: yeah and and that's fine to be offended i'm not fine but i mean if if, that's totally one thing to be offended and annoyed that they get called on him but to say that you're going to formally request that somebody like for an easier umpire that's like so weird and it just seems like very not rafa
0: yeah it's it's weird it just seems immature or just yeah
1: because he's pretty he's pretty straight up and you know he's pretty good sportsman and all these sorts of things. And to the extent that the time violation stuff is happening, that's just like an ongoing negotiation between him and the umpire, which is his right. He can negotiate He can try and negotiate all he wants. But to go so far as to say that, i was I was pretty surprised.
0: yeah. so the match before that uh, had happened it ended at I think around three eighteen, three nineteen a m against Pablo Cuevas, and Rafa came back to win that match after losing he ever yeah, lost the first set to Cuevas who's played well won Sao Paulo the week before uh, in the Brazil swing which is sort of cool that it's an actual mini thing that exists now that match was shaky but it was a good win against the players been playing well although Courtney I think you and I and other people who even though the circumstances were understandable down 5-0 in the third to Nadal at 319 a.m were not impressed I guess with how Cuevas ended things.
1: Yeah, I mean, if people can look it up, I think there are vines or videos of the last game from Cuevas. I mean, the swings were wild. The misses were terrible. The double faults were there. It was...
0: Intentional. I think he got a warning. for. I thought I heard a warning from Bernardes for lack of effort. Really? I have to go back and... I have to go back and I'll try to find it on Tennis TV or something, but I thought, like, as he was rushing between points like at like, love 30 or right before love 40, Bernardes might have chimed in with a warning because he was seriously ripcording on that match yeah. like i've almost never seen anyone do
1: and again it should be said it was 3 15 or 17 in the morning when that happened it would have been nice yeah. to see effort because for those of us who were sticking around on site trying to wait for this match to end by the time that it got to like you know two we o'clock we're like oh please like let, let's just beat the record let's have it be worth something like yeah. you know let's not let's you know and it fell short by about five it, minutes it was
0: still pretty full yeah, There's yeah, a lot yeah.
1: Of fans there. yeah. yeah, yeah. It was Friday night. I mean, that's what all the Brazilians were telling me. They're like, what do we have to do? Tomorrow's Saturday. So um, the press room was, was pretty hilarious throughout the whole thing as, as the night match was going and everybody was just kind of, everybody's in a good, I mean, Brazilians, they're just, they're pretty happy people. Um, and everybody's just kind of cracking up just at the absurdity of what our night was looking like it would entail. But, uh, but yeah, a, a disappointing effort there from Cuevas in the end, but at the same time, I kind of totally think it's human
0: That's <laughs> fair any any thoughts on the women's side at all of rio what i mean i saw that they were playing earlier in the day mostly and i saw a few stadium shots that were super empty
1: yeah but i mean it's,
0: how was the women's event received there
1: it's 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 too early um i mean all the women's mat the women's tournament is basically played in the day the men's tournament is effectively played in, like, the afternoon and evening. And the women are, are put on, the, you know, the outer courts. They don't get, like, as much primary placement, but that's understandable. It's an ATP 500. It's a WTA yeah. international. That's totally It's like
0: cool. Washington, the same
1: Exactly. Way. I don't really have a problem with that whatsoever. So, but pretty straightforward. I mean, Irani obviously came awfully close to losing to Brazilian wildcard ranked outside the top 200. Beatriz Haddad Maya, I think is her... how how her name is pronounced, Bia, as they call her here, who's 18 years old. And I actually, I really like her a lot, like watching her play. She was someone who I was like, man, like if this kid can kind of pull things together and get some ranking points and get up there, she's tall. She's like something like six. She looks six feet tall, strong. Yeah. Big serve, strong, you know, needs to improve movement, fitness and things like that. Um, But yeah, had three, three match points. On Sarah Ronnie in the quarterfinals quarterfinals must have been quarterfinals and then uh eventually wasn't able to serve it out lost the second set tiebreaker and was forced to retire three games into the final set due to heat distress and it was a brutal day so yeah and then the women did struggle a lot with the heat they were obviously being you know playing at under noon skies noon one o'clock p.m two o'clock p.m when it's when it's incredibly hot so there were some bloody noses. I think Arena uh, Camelia Begu um, had some issues, cramping. Um, it was it was rough for the ladies.
0: There you go. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. Definitely getting day session. I think there's another term that, that does that too. Has all the women. I guess Madrid mostly puts the women all mostly early, mm-hmm. and then the men get the more prime time slots, more or less. Yeah. And especially with guess, Spanish culture and Brazilian, with their emphasis on nightlife and late starts of the day and midday heat. That kind of Fits. Yep. So For there you sure. go. So that was Brazil. The other big tournament that was happening was the Premier Five WTA event that was happening in Dubai this week, which was won by Simona Hallop, her second title of the year, getting her back up to number three in the rankings, beating Karolina Plishkova in the final. Uh, Simona, we talked about, I think, on the show at some point this year, that kind of a off start to the year with uh, her disappointing very flat loss to Makarova in Australia and then the loss she took to Muguruza and Fed Cup um statement sort of week for Simona you think Courtney
1: I think so I mean I think it was closer to a statement than you know the last her last two outings yeah I, I thought that she played incredibly well I thought that her win over Caroline Wozniacki was was um I mean, she dropped the first set, but then just basically put together a clinic. The semifinals avenged that loss to Makarova, winning 7-5 in the third in a great match. Very good quality in that final set in that one. And then, yeah, in the final, it takes care of Pliskova. But um, I think it was more importantly... Irrespective of kind of her level or anything else, I think that especially those two wins over Wozniacki and Makarova, those are big wins in Simona's own mind.
2: Yeah, And
1: I think that that's really the thing is like there's an objective way to look at it. You can look at it and say, well, was it that hard of, the, of a draw? She's the top seed. You know, should we really be so impressed that she won this? Yeah, okay, those are all fair questions on some level, although I disagree with some of the premises there. But more importantly, it matters to her. And as a player who you know struggles to deal with pressure, a player who admits that sometimes she has doubts and, and, and can't unlock her best game, and is also continually trying to prove herself to herself, yeah. that she belongs in the penthouse, in, in, the, in the top five, and should be expected to win, all these sorts of things. I think that it, it was massive for her.
0: I think we've got to remember with Halib just how really new she still is to being a top player. This time, last year, she was just getting into the top 10 for the first time. And now she's top three and made a grandstand final. And it's really seen as someone who is a big time contender and sort of heavyweight, even though she's tiny in in the sport. It's not easy for everybody. I mean, it's not, everyone isn't born with that sense of, you know, this is my my shit, I belong here. Right. Like the sort of swagger that someone like a Serena has, the, both Williams' arrived to the tour with, uh, someone like a Bouchard clearly has already in terms of that belief, thinking, no, 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 I deserve this. Right. And so for other people, the results and this talent far, far run ahead precede the belief, and Simona's sort of catching up with that. I think the the Makarova win especially was huge because how meekly she lost to her in Australia and um, getting bageled in the second set there. And I think that sort of undoes it. And I loved Halep's quote. I don't know if you saw her Encore interview after that match where she said something like, um, I had I had to become fighter girl or something. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the exact words, but it was – she said fighter oh, girl. She and is it was a amazing. blessing. She is a
1: good – she's a great
0: quote. Her English is my favorite. Though. It yeah, is. Because it's, it's, it's totally good and completely gets the point across, but it's still – Homemade in a way that I find (laughs) wonderfully delightful. That
1: is a very good way of describing it. And yeah, I mean, what I find compelling about Simona Halep, and I find this compelling about many players in the WTA, is that she's incredibly human. I find that her, as much as I can sit there from a writer perspective or someone who is supposed to kind of look at everything critically and evaluate player performances. And I can look at that Makarova match at the Australian open and say, that was incredibly disappointing. She didn't show up. She totally, you know, broke under the pressure, all those things I truly believe. But at the same time, there's also kind of the other side where I'm like, and that's totally normal. Like that is a human response. And that's something because of everything that you said, Ben, in terms of her very recent breakthrough right like it, yeah it, it, like you said you have to, it takes time to grow into it and uh, so I, that's why I think this year is going to be very interesting for Simona Hallett because if she can replicate you know even close to replicate her success last year I think that she'll be in good stead you know for the next few years and this title and this run really helps solidify that I mean two titles now yeah that's not bad
0: first one I believe this year with two titles Yep, I think that's yeah. correct yeah there you go Good on you, Simona. Quick other shout out around the tours to other winners in Marseille. Gilles Simone won over Gail Malthils. Gail Malthiste now five and seventeen <laughs> in tour finals. Ugh.
1: And he, has to, and he has to give Gilles Simone six kebabs. Oh,
0: does he? I didn't yes, see that.
1: Yes, they were exchanging bets um, before the final with Gilles Simone asking Gael, you know, do you want to put a kebab on, on the match, wager a kebab on the match? And then Simone said, how about two? And then somehow it escalated to six, I think. Okay. Um, so I'm not convinced that Gilles Simone can even eat a single kebab. He now <laughs> has six. So good for you.
0: There you go. He's a, he a kebab-shaped gentleman.
1: <laughs> He's so. a kebab-shaped gentleman. <laughs>
0: So there you go. And the winner, who is a very different build than Simone in Delray, Ivo Karlovich, has quietly had a great few years, a couple years since his meningitis scare a couple years ago. He's 35 years old, still playing, which is, let's be clear, like it gets exponentially older the yeah. <laughs> as you get into your 30s. There's a big difference between being 35 and 33. Yep. And he's 35 and won a title, and that's pretty cool. In Delray, beating Donald Young yeah, in the final, and, so.
1: and a shout out to Donald Young.
0: Yeah, yeah, solid week for both.
1: Yeah, very very good week for Dy, and a very good two weeks for Dy, making two straight ATP semifinals, um, and then this week making the final. So yeah, very nice week for very nice uh, month, I guess, for Donald Young. Be yeah. nice to see him kind of continue to back that up.
0: Uh, Johnson made the semifinals in here, so we're gonna get to another American later. But in terms, if you had to pick now, if you were a courier, who would you make the second guy? Oh. For Davis Cup singles for the U.S. after Isner, assuming he gets the first slot
1: against Britain.
0: Yeah, on indoor hard. I believe. Yeah,
1: indoor quick hard. Gosh, I gotta go. Qu- I gotta go Johnson. Sorry. Okay, Johnson. Yeah.
0: I think that would be my pick too.
1: Yeah, I do, I'm not entirely. I was incredibly impressed by Sam Querrey's performance um, against Kaney Shikori in uh, Memphis, um, and if he plays like that, obviously he's the pick. But. Um, I don't think Sam's always been the best Davis Cup guy. Um no. and I don't He think...
0: flopped against Great Britain last year and that's why they, they lost that's right. To with him losing to James Ward in 5 on clay. That yeah. was
1: bad. So I don't I don't really like that uh, pick very much. And then with DY it's just it's it's too re- it's too recent. You know, I mean I I still just I really like Steve Johnson as a Davis Cup player simply because of his college experience. Yeah. Like being in that sort of he knows how to play when it's noisy. He knows how to play when people are cheering against him, um, and he's he's been incredibly consistent. You know, you I mean, go. he should beat the British number two. That's all your yeah. number two needs to do.
0: And he and he could and he can definitely take a set off Murray.
1: Sure, he could tire out of Murray on day one.
0: Yeah, because you know? Murray's going to play. I have to play doubles and both singles. So yeah. uh, if you get it, if you can get one set off Murray, that's pretty good. And I think he's the less likely of the two. I think Query could show up and kind of get blown off the court a little bit more than Johnson will. At least have some longer rallies in there. Agreed. So there you go. Uh, That's your American Davis Cup
2: update.
0: (laughs) Now is the second installment of our hotly received, very popular off the bat, Slay Drag feature, where we discuss the players this week who slayed and who got dragged. (laughs) so
1: <laughs> do you need a lozenge it's amazing
0: <laughs> no i just i think i can summon i really do feel these words are just demonic is the word i use for them. just like this i just see people being like
1: ah, yeah so this sort of guide and thing. just like yeah 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 yeah
0: totally. so it's primal like gladiatorial yes yeah, slay because uh, slay is a word that means kill so you know yep. it should sound unpleasant my pick for Slay, which you consented to this week, uh, was Karolina Pliskova, who is up to number 13 in the rankings next week.
1: Would have been 12 if not for Sara Arani's run in Rio.
0: Right. So she's up to number 13. Um, would have been number 11 with the title. It's only 30 points out of 11 right now. So very, very close for somebody started the year outside of top 20. That's huge to do this in just two months, um, especially with not a, not a great th- slam result.
1: And she's playing top 10 tennis. Oh, easily. I mean, it's easily. not even close. She totally is. So, yeah, I mean, if I were to redo my power rankings, I think Karolina Pliskova would be, you know, up towards, what, six or seven? Maybe eight? I'd have to look at it. But she's firmly in the top ten in terms of I would think so. where she's playing right now.
0: The Pliskova phenomenon, we haven't really talked about much on the show at all because, I mean, they've come pretty much out of nowhere. Karolina won her first title uh, two years ago in Kuala Lumpur, back when she was way out of the top 100, and didn't back it up with much immediately. And then last year, really slowly came along, gained solid results, for solid result. Nothing big at the slams, really. And hasn't made the second week of a slam yet in her career. But she is becoming incredibly, incredibly reliable and consistent. For somebody, when you look at her, you think, well, why can't people just run her around and beat her easily? And she has such such incredible timing, such pure ball striking. And it's proven to be a pretty good competitor. I mean, she's won some close matches over big players, backed it up. And her schedule over this year has been kind of insane. She went to Brisbane first week, beat Azarenka in a highly touted first-round match. Uh, They made the final of Sydney, then lost to eventual semifinalist Makarova in Australia, third round, which is not a bad loss at all. Went and played Fed Cup for Czech Republic in Quebec in North America, then flew over to Europe to make the Antwerp semifinal then flew to Dubai to make the final there, and now she's in the Doha draw next week. And she beat some big players along the way at all those stops, pretty much. Uh, this week in Dubai, she beat Ivanovic, beat Safarova, beat Muguruza, who's having a great week in the semifinals, 7-5 in the third, and then played well against Talip, losing 4-6. So absolutely no shame there. And she's definitely someone who's going to see the top 10 soon rather than later, you have to think, especially... Tech number ten has a lot of points coming up, so if Pliskova can keep up anywhere near this pace, you got to think she's getting in there pretty soon. And might even get up to, you know, like you, like we said for her power ranking, you know, five, six, seven by the end of this year.
1: Yeah, I mean it, she has a lot of points to gain at the majors. I mean, I don't. I mean, the clay is coming up, so don't know how that's going to pan out for her. Not her and, best. Not yeah, her best. and even on grass, I don't know how that's going to work for her, simply because she's so upright. And um, it...
0: grass has been okay for her. I, her sister won Junior Wimbledon, or twin sister Christina. So yeah, not the same but... person, but a plus of a They are different people. They are different people, but someone with that exact body has won Junior Wimbledon.
1: Yeah, no, so. that, I'm not. I'm not. Using okay. that uh, as part of my analysis on this one, but she is she is incredibly upright, but obviously with the flatness that w- with which she hit. I mean, obviously you know the, the, a Petra Kvitova can do it, who can get low, but can also get you know she's also tall and rangy. So, but yeah, no, I was incredibly impressed by what Karolina Pliskova did, and I think that one thing that you pointed out, Ben, is absolutely right, and the reason why I've been impressed with her this uh, year so far is that she's winning close matches. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, started the week in Dubai with the straight set win over Anastasia Pavlichenkova, who is dropping like a rock, by the way, and then beat Barbara Zolobo stritseva in straight sets, which very good win for her because stritseva yeah. is playing Good top twenty tennis. Beats Ivanovich, believe that's the second straight time she's beaten her, uh having beaten her at the US Open last year. Yeah. Uh 6-4 six four in the third. Yeah, there. six four yeah. in the third there. Uh Safarova, tough match there, beats her six one in the in the third, but um that second set uh was was tight. Seven six, uh Carolina pliskova was able to take it, seven five in the breaker. And then uh Muguru to seven five in the third, and then yeah, uh, against halep kind of just uh ran out of gas in a lot of ways, but but played a great match as all things considered, but um that schedule that you read off, it gives me the bends. Like you know what I mean? Like it's just like, oh my God, that's a lot of flying.
0: (laughs) It's too much. Like, I mean, it's not sustainable whatsoever, obviously that pace and maybe she I don't think she scheduled with, you know, this is not what we call quote unquote swagger scheduling and that you think you're gonna get deep at every tournament. And, you know, do big things. Because I I totally think she should pull out a Doha. If if she's feeling fine or not, just give yourself a break, girl. Yeah, go home. So, go home. (laughs) Take a nap, seriously. Go hang out with your sister in St. Petersburg. Is it a 25K or 50K there or something? Just relax. Yeah, so. That's good. The Pliskovas, we've known of, I mean, they've been kind of a known quantity among tennis nerd circles for a while because they were both great juniors. And I... Don't think people thought they'd be great pros because they were so gangly and awkward looking, as movers and even just even just around the the tour around the locker around the lounges and stuff. You see them and they're just so big, like they like seriously like Caroline. I was at Fed Cup in Prague and like the Czech Fed Cup team is all standing in line and her legs are so long. Yeah. It's amazing. She, it's like seriously like, whoa.
1: It reminds me that da- she in a lot of ways reminds me of Daniela Hantukova. Completely. Uh, just game style as well uh, in terms of just beautiful timing and ball striking. She's a better mover um, and she's more aggressive. She doesn't let people kind of bully her around. I think Daniela drops back a little bit too much. But, but she's got a great serve. And she's too. got a great serve, which is which is massive. So, yeah, I mean there's just a lot to like and, and just a fun player to watch. I don't know. I enjoy watching her play tennis um, because the strokes are – phenomenal the aggressive intent is great and her absolutely placid demeanor is just fascinating
0: (laughs) she's so emotionless but in this way that's like crosses over boring into fascinating it's like there is there is just complete blank slate there and i was really surprised when i talked to her for a story i was doing on twins that was largely because of her um, at the Australian open this year and i got someone one time with her which i might put some audio of in here that she was like bubbly and giggly and like fun and smiling i was like who are you you're not the person i've seen this whole time so even when you're on other sides of the world you can still talk yes yes Constantly?
2: Yes. WhatsApp
0: or what, what do you use? WhatsApp, yeah. WhatsApp. We are
2: also on Viber or Skype talking if there is something really like that we need to talk and not just text. What's, what's
0: impo- what what level, what raises the level of being important that you have to talk?
2: Well, that's probably um, guys.
0: Yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> so we have to talk about this every day. And...
0: So I think still getting used to the stage, definitely on some level, but also her game face is just just amusing it
1: is it's it's like cyborgian and i think i said this on twitter because every time i see her play it i do think of this but she reminds me of 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 every time i see her i think of species the movie (laughs) and it's why i think that on some level i'm a little wary of her but also fascinated and um there's just something a little alien about her to me but but I don't mean that in a negative way in any way, shape or form. It's just, it's just fascinating. Intriguing. Jimmy,
0: Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, 48, who as a the tennis photographer does women's tennis travels around shooting it. Um, you can guys should all follow on Twitter because his photos have been great. Uh, this past year, although he's not going to be anywhere until Stuttgart at JJ Loves Tennis, he was saying, like, he was doing Pliskova because he was in Antwerp and Dubai and was, like, always waiting for the match point reaction shot from each player when they win. And for her, it was just, like, nothing. <laughs> There's, like, no reaction whatsoever. And it was, like, oh, what's the point?
1: Well, which so. makes the times where she does have reaction, like, her reaction after beating Azarenka in yeah. Brisbane was, like, a legit, like, whoa. And some. She bobbles it up. Bobbles and it
3: up. I feel like.
1: Am I wrong, or did she let loose a massive, like, scream? Like, like, that match against Muguruza was getting tense at times, and I feel like she was giving as good as, like, Muguruza was giving.
0: She she will reciprocate. Yeah. If the other person's doing it, She'll it'll take her a long time to get warmed up, but she can eventually get there, which may, which also is endearing, because it shows that she is paying attention to the match. Like, <laughs> total vacancy, which you might think at certain points with her demeanor. So I I find her fascinating, and looking forward to seeing what she can do the rest of this year especially the majors because like we said she has not made an impact there I mean she beating Ivanovic was a big thing yeah. at the time US Open because Ivanovic was playing great but other than that uh, yeah still waiting to make her big major debut run and that she's done that she could get to be top 10 without having a big major run yet it's pretty impressive for sure uh, so Courtney who is the opposite of Christina of oh, sorry of Karolina Pliskova's slaying who got who got dragged this week. Uh
1: this week the drag uh e Yeah. <laughs> is America's number 1, John is there. <laughs> and John has had a pretty rough start to the season. I think that it's official after this one. He played Delray Beach. Uh he lost in his opening match in the first round. He was seated second. He lost to Marinko Matosovic 64 6-4. 6-4. I don't understand how Marin Matasevich breaks John Isner twice. Nope. Shouldn't um, happen. That's not something that should be happening. Um, but just in general, yeah, just, uh, you know, we were talking about Carolina Pliskova and we were talking about kind of what she's done in addition to what she did last week in terms of giving her the the sleigh, uh, sleigh badge. And um, <laughs> <laughs> we should hand these out of her. <laughs>
0: Like a certificate, like should, should, to I think, honor fill in the blank. You have slayed.
1: I think I think that's great. I think that we should make T-shirts that yeah. like say slayed. Anyways, but um, but yeah. So John Isner's uh, a season so far. He started at Hotman Cup. Then he goes to Australian Open. Loses in the third round to Gilles Muller in straight sets. Loses in the quarterfinals of Memphis uh, to Sam Querrey in straight sets.
0: After um, a bye, so he only won one match. Yeah,
1: exactly. He only won one match there and then loses l- last week uh, to Marinko Matasevic in uh, straight sets. So that's three. I mean, his last three losses have been straight set losses, which is weird. Um, and I didn't get a chance to see any of that Marinko match, so I don't know the specifics of it or how he's playing or what's going on. But, um, yeah, about, this is not been good or-
0: yeah, you talk about Isler being so much better in the U.S. than outside of it. So for him to f- more or less flop like this at two back-to-back U.S. 250s, which should be his bread and butter, not good. And so I, I don't think we're at the point of him, you know, losing to James Ward on the opening day of Davis Cup coming up. But at the same time, it wouldn't be the biggest shock with this build-up. And so far, he's been working with Justin Gimelstab new this year. that they, have, they haven't really hasn't shown any big progress on that front yet. Did play okay at Hopman Cup actually. Serena was the one who brought down the team so badly that week <laughs> that's true. for the US. Um so John maybe just exhausted from carrying Serena. Yeah, but overall not impressive. So and on the opposite side, like the other guy who's six foot ten won the title this week. So it's right. not even like tall people can't do things in Delray. It's so I feel true. like that has to make John be a little more like, you know, gosh darn. Yeah. Could have done some things. And he lost to Matasevich, who got lost six one, six three in the next round, to Yoshihito Nishioka, who's a nineteen year old Japanese guy who's like five foot four. He is tiny. And yeah, so this should this kind of thing should be happening. It was a good week for teens overall in the Delray. Brublev and Kokonakis also won main draw matches, so youth are coming, That's and John true. Isner is not.
1: Yeah, so. and, and getting back to Isner too. I mean, uh, he does have semifinalist points to defend at any wells.
0: That's right, yeah.
1: So that becomes pretty dicey. I mean, he's already I think out. Uh, he's number twenty, I think, now, yeah. and so that's that's massive. And yeah, he got called out by Marty Fish on Twitter, who uh, Marty Fish politely reminded John that he won the wooden spoon. This week in Delray Beach. And Caroline Wozniacki got in on the the ribbing as well. So saying, well, at least he won something. So yeah, not ideal. While we're kind
0: of ripping on John Isner here, who I mostly think is an awesome person. And I don't, we, I, we never really pile on him on the show. And he's a very nice guy. And it's all we have in American <laughs> tennis. For the last several so years on the men's side, you mentioned Wozniacki, which reminds me of the old days of them on Twitter when they used to be sort of flirty. And we rediscovered recently... For people who haven't seen it back in the 42 days, Courtney heroically <laughs> captured, back before you could even embed tweets, uh, Courtney captured an exchange between Isner and Andrea Petkovich, um, and a brief cameo from Adelina Grunfeld. <laughs> it's just so cringeworthy and tremendous. So It
1: is really hard to read. It's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. Like, years later, I still get so much secondhand embarrassment. Ugh. It makes I'm like I'm like uncomfortable right now, just even thinking about it. There you go. But anyways, yeah.
0: We'll recommend it. We'll tweet that link out (laughs) because it's cringeworthy but but worthy. Speaking of Twitter, next up we have a chat that I did earlier today with two Twitter all-stars, Victoria Chiesa and David Kane, who are the co founders of the tennis island website which they started up late last year and is doing big things and talk to them about seeing the game from the internet and how that sh- formed their tennis experiences and what they make of this world of tennis so far so here is me and those two guys and we will be back after this we are here with the wonder twins david kane and victoria kiesa hi guys
3: Hi, ben. Ben.
0: So these, you two are the founding members of the Tennis Island, the, the founders, the creators of the Tennis Island, and which is one of the more active blogs out there in tennis today. And both Courtney and I came from the blogging world in different directions, so we, you guys are near and dear to our hearts for keeping that flickering flame alive. So thank you for that, first of all, and second of all, I guess how how did you guys get the inspiration to combine forces and start what you've started?
4: It's so interesting that you guys have really taken to it as a blogging platform because actually we're very clear with one another, Victoria. Now that we we are a website, we are a Ooh. news online publication, <laughs> Ooh. and is blog, so is, then- blog,
0: is blog a dirty word to you guys?
4: I don't know. I just feel in terms of the layout and the way we've structured things, we try to make it more column-based and less post-by-post. I feel like a blog is more like you scroll down and all the posts are there, but we kind of tried to go the – because I feel like that's where we all came from, and this kind of represents a step up. And I'm not saying that blogging is a step down. I just feel that we're trying to – go beyond um our roots i guess a little bit. yeah i will <laughs> so, i will say that yeah, i go. never
0: liked being called the blogger per se when i did it i didn't like the word that much either i don't know if there's some stigma to it or what so maybe i shouldn't have called you guys that so sorry but
4: oh, not at all that i'm sorry to get all solange on you
3: <laughs> i've Come never up. had uh, i've never had an aversion to the word blog per se but i like to call us a multimedia hub oh boy Ah,
4: yes. I've used that, too. I've used that on Reddit (laughs) when I'm promoting the site.
0: There you go. Okay, so how did you guys decide to get started? Because I guess talk one by one, let's start with you, Victoria. How did you start writing about tennis or getting really into tennis? And then how did you guys decide to eventually combine forces? Because you guys have known each other a while.
3: Jeez, that's a loaded thing. (laughs) Uh, I started playing tennis, I guess when I was younger than I am now. And it just kind of turned into, um, as someone who, you know, in high school and things, I wrote for my high school newspaper. And the two things just kind of joined together as the years went on. And when I went to college, David and I kind of came together uh, through Twitter, actually, despite the fact that we grew up 20 minutes from each other.
4: Not knowing that the other one existed.
3: Yes, not at all. So that totally shuts down the theory that everyone from Long Island knows each other. No. <laughs> it's people
0: realize, I mean, it actually is a very, you know, Long Island.
3: Yes, yeah. we, we do. We put the long in Long Island. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Incredibly so. But um, it, it just turned into, you know, we had met through social media and then finally met up in person and then, learned that we were in such close proximity to each other and we kind of felt that what we were doing separately could become something more than what we were already doing that we could each take our talents and our strong points and combine into one big smorgasbord of tennis fun. And a lot of this was developed on the Long Island Railroad. Oh yes, <laughs> it's the site of our it's our it's our
4: uh it's our church. It's where we go to uh talk things out and to they really owe us a, a lot. great philosophical insight into uh, our lives and where we're, where we're going and where we've been. And it's just, it's a great metaphor for our whole uh, tennis journalistic experience. <laughs>
0: for, I guess for most of your tennis, for all of it, I guess all of your tennis writing, maybe even most of, well, I guess more recent fandom Twitter has been around and been a big instrumental part of that. I mean, how, and it's obviously how you two got together. I mean, how, how do, how do you think, how, integral is twitter to tennis how you guys experience tennis
4: i i give such credit to tennis uh, to twitter and tennis i feel that twitter is really responsible for everything that i've done in the world of tennis and the world of writing um i joined twitter as a fan five years ago over fanboy over (laughs) fanboy still going strong in spirit and i had no idea how twitter worked and i followed a couple of accounts one of them was uh at the daily forehand Uh i don't know if you know him but um, kind of a jerk he was live tweeting a match and me not really knowing how it worked i just kept answering every (laughs) every live tweet thinking that you know it's just a conversation that we're having that i don't that i was having with myself and um slowly you know it's it's not a it's not a it's not a steep learning curve and after a while i started networking and suddenly I was meeting people who knew I was going to the U.S. Open every year. And uh, Romana Svikovic from uh, Tennis Grandstand at the time uh, reached out to me and asked me to be like a roving reporter on the grounds. And from there, I started working for Tennis Grandstand. And then when we all kind of moved to Tennis View magazine, Victoria and I, I was writing for that. And that's when we were covering the U.S. Open. I was covering it for USOpen.org and she was covering it for Tennis View. And that was when we were really.
0: That was last watching, year,
4: right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. We're watching a lot of tennis together and covering tennis, coming, getting a, a great amount of um, press experience, asking questions, doing interviews, and then taking the train back home together and realizing what we're where we're going to go from here. And that's really where um, we felt like we've done a lot of blogging. We've done a lot of um, freelance work, emphasis on the free. Mm-hmm. And um, we really wanted to join forces and, uh, and work together. But Twitter has been responsible for everything. It helped me make connections to get a job at World Team Tennis, getting to work with Billie Jean King. It helps me get the editorial contributor position at USOpen.org. Without Twitter, I I don't even know if I'd be writing about tennis right now. I don't know what I'd be doing.
3: I definitely agree with that. As somebody who is in the process of finishing a bachelor's degree in journalism, I feel like everything that professors have told me and that I've learned in the classroom kind of manifests itself on Twitter, particularly, um, and in tennis Twitter. And I feel like it's if you learn how to use it in the quote-unquote right way, it can be such a useful tool, um, especially for students. Uh, I I find myself talking a lot in classes kind of about my experiences through Twitter and quote-unquote journalism and all of these things that I feel that new media has kind of helped with and it's it's something that I definitely agree that I would never have thought that any of that was possible at the stage where I am right now.
0: Well, I think Courtney and I were the same way. I mean I think that for us we were didn't have any real pedigrees in terms of having any big outlet attached to our names and with Twitter, if you could develop a following or people who care at all what you think and we were on it you know earlier than you guys, um, it can be. Yeah, you can really make something out of nothing in a way that's sort of incredibly organic and self-starting, and it also means you don't know who the hell anyone else is when you're on there. Like, wait, who are you? Why do I know who oh, you are? Oh, yeah. absolutely.
4: <laughs> I mean, you run in. I would say most, the vast majority of people in the tennis Twitter community are who they say they are. I mean, there are there have been people who are not, but <laughs> for the most part, everybody who I've met has always been very nice, very friendly, and. It's just a really nice community to really kind of grow as a person, as a writer. It's it's kind of – I feel like it's kind of the internet's best kept secret because I don't – sometimes I forget that Twitter is actually used to communicate with members of One Direction. It's not actually used for anything else. There's, but, uh,
0: there's always a Larry Stylinson trending topic on Twitter at all times.
4: I, I like to keep the worldwide Twitter trends. I feel like it keeps me grounded. It keeps me – reminds me of who I am and what I'm doing. And,
0: Sometimes
3: uh, they're incredible.
0: Yeah, they really are. Um, so I met you guys both first at US Open qualifying a couple years ago. I think you were probably guessing, bouncing back and forth between matches with, like, Michelle larcher Brito and Anastasia Rodianova or something. Um, Putin Seva's probably playing on there, too. Why Why do you guys love tennis, and what is it about the drama of tennis that appeals so much to both of you as Long
2: Islanders.
4: <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. I, there is something incredibly human about tennis. There is an arc to it that when you're watching it, you can feel it. There's a rhythm and there's a tempo and there's a movement to it. In fact, when I quite a few years ago, I started listening, listening to music while watching tennis on the grounds. Cause I felt like there was a certain, um, similarity in which you kind of feel like it's almost like a soundtrack to and there's like a percussive element to tennis that I really kind of appreciated as well but um I love I love all kinds of tennis in that way I like when there's a lot of drama um I feel like that's kind of the best kind of tennis I, I like I like my tennis with something else generally if it's kind of just if you know where it's going it's kind of harder to get into it it kind of feels like a book in that way it's uh there needs to be a kind of narrative process within the match before you can take something out of it. I think sometimes the the fear is, I guess, maybe among journalists is that maybe our readers think that we're just kind of pulling things out of nowhere. Where I really think that if you're if you're if you know what to look for, there are certain patterns and conclusions that you can really draw out of it that can be very interesting and uh, very entertaining.
3: And at the risk of sounding cliched, I guess tennis is so different than other sports in the sense that at least for me, when I sit and watch two players, you know, whether it's at particularly at qualifying or lower level tournaments, you know, you get the sense that they're kind of fighting for so much. And it's just such a easy thing to get enthralled by. You know, you have these two players going at each other head to head, just the two of them. And it's, there's something weirdly rhythmic and enthralling by that. And I can't really, I can't really put I I can't really put into words, um, what it is, but it's just, that's, that's, that's it. Okay. It's just, I, I, can't, I can't put it into words. I really can't.
4: Qualifying is a weird animal in that it's, it's like simultaneously low stakes and high stakes at the same right, time. Right, when yeah, you feel like exactly. it, it's kind of relaxing and like an easy way to get into the tournament, especially at, like a, at a Grand Slam, like the US Open, but at the same time, it's, it matters so much to these players. And, it, and then so you become emotionally invested in their own journey in that way. And you, you don't even really, after a while, you don't think about who they are, you just see them as players competing to win a match, which is ultimately what everyone is competing for, whether you're Serena Williams or a Rody Nova sister.
0: Victoria, you made a mention to watching two players, but I know that haven't knowing you that your focus is usually just as much on the as on the third person on the court sitting in the chair. <laughs> I know that you've probably, I think we, we talked about this before for different purposes, but um, you have a keen affection for chair empires and often are, are sort of their first line of defense from any criticism on Twitter. Often uh, you know the rule book. Well, what is it? Why your fascination with the men and women who sit up so high?
4: Tell the people, Victoria.
3: (laughs) This is my moment to. I can't. I guess for me, I've always been a person who's I who's always been very kind of by the book, literally. Okay. Uh, but for me, kind of, I always have found it interesting to see how things work, and for me in tennis, that extends to rules and why the sport is the way it is. And so as someone who's read the rule book for fun and (laughs) work, uh as someone who's umpired junior tennis, you know, at the lowest levels before, it's just always it's enhanced my tennis watching experience because it gives you a different perspective. You know, if you're sitting watching a match and obviously, you know, you're enthralled by kind of what's going on and the drama and the intrigue of the actual play. But then if something happens, you know, you can say, okay, this happened, you know, that hindrance was called because of this reason. And it's it helps in the sense that it keeps you grounded because, you know, your first instinct is to react, well, why did that happen? Why was that so controversial? You know, why was it called when it was? All of those things that you see all the time. But when you know why it was and why it is, it, for me, at least, it it's always been something that's helped me as a tennis aficionado, quote-unquote. Are,
0: are you someone who get I'm guessing, you get more excited by hindrance calls than by, like, spectacular winners?
3: That is an incorrect statement. No? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Rumor. And I would like to debunk that rumor immediately.
0: Ah. Uh, I like hindrance calls. They're fun. They, they're very rare. They're kind of unicorns. They're... Each one is a little different. And when it happens, you can get so excited knowing that it should happen. Like, I was at um, Kirilenko Sharapova in India Wells when she did the hockey, when Kirilenko did the stick tap.
3: Maria Chichak's coming out party. Yeah, that
0: was Chichak's big crowning moment. And I don't know. I was so excited that I immediately knew a rule had been broken in such a ridiculously flagrant way and that justice was getting handed down. I don't know. I, I thought that was spectacular. But.
4: We, yeah, we have a particular affection for that match as well. I've, I've imitated it. <laughs> I've, um, we've, we've reenacted it. It's kind of, um, it's a special moment for the two of us. Um, but <laughs> certainly, it's true what Victoria is saying. I mean, I, I was never more comfortable watching a match than when I was watching Peng Shui Wozniaki the uh, US Open semifinal. Oh, next to Victoria, who immediately knew what was going on in a way that myself or the other heat stroke affected um, people in the crowd were aware of. And (laughs) right away it was, oh no, like she's going to get defaulted if, if it's, if it's cramps, because that this can't happen at four three in the second set. And there is an importance to understanding the rules of the game because otherwise without that, there becomes just a sense of, patriotism and yelling that you kind of overshadows kind of what the facts are. And that can be sometimes detrimental. I feel to people understanding what the sport is
0: being, being two of the younger voices in the sport. Um, and you guys are well younger than me, which I don't get to say about many people in tennis. Um, what do you guys make of the current state of the sport? And I guess the media landscape, like, what do you, what do you like? What do you think could be better? What do you not like? However, you want to take this. What, what do you hmm. what do you make of the current way the sport is and how it's covered and talked
4: about? Um, I feel personally that maybe just I don't want, I don't want to say it's because it's we're um we're young, but I feel that maybe we're less inclined to look back on tennis that is past and then look back on today mournfully by comparison like i i feel like we're less inclined to be like oh tennis was so much better before the game was so much better before in particular uh, in reference to women's tennis
2: mm-hmm. um
4: but i think we're able to stay more in the moment in terms of analyzing what the game is and realizing that there is a good tennis that is being played and good and good matches to watch if you're paying attention i think sometimes there, there is this notion of being like well this to get, to get much more entrenched in the negative aspects of tennis. And maybe that drives more viewership because people are more likely maybe to click on something controversial. But I found that people are also very happy and willing to read about things that are positive. And I know that's something I have always tried to do and not on purpose in the sense where I'm tr- going out of my way to speak positively about a player. But if I feel that there is a positive um, story happening, I want to be able to tell it. And I feel like there is a, a good amount of um, gratitude on behalf of the people who do read it. And they think, oh, this is, this is, this, thank you for telling this. And I, I do appreciate
2: that.
3: Uh, and I agree with that uh, to an extent. It's that, you know, if people are inclined to say, well, you know, the sport is about, you know, Serena and Maria and the big four, but there are so many other things going on. And I think that's what makes tennis great is that you know in other sports you know you have however many teams are in the and the NFL or MLB whatever but in tennis there are literally hundreds of players mm. whose stories are kind of not being swept under the rug but no one's looked enough for them and there are so many and I think that's at least for me the greatest thing about every really everything that we've talked about whether it's Twitter and the role that you know, new media plays and tennis and all those things, that it gives people the capability to tell these stories. And that's why it's great. And, you know, when you have a community, because at least for me, kind of before I knew Twitter and the tennis Twitter community, all that, I was kind of one of the only people that I knew who followed tennis. So it was great to kind of find this kinship with people who I would not obviously have known otherwise. And to be able to talk about these things, which are so great and awesome that are happening, uh, with people who share that same affinity for it, it it's a great thing.
0: It is it is true. When I travel around to tennis tournaments, which I obviously do more than you guys do, it's um, being with other tennis people. It's like finding people who speak the same language you do. It's like your mother tongue that's very nearly extinct in the world now. And you find these weird enclaves of people, who, especially ones who like really like tennis, which is not everybody in tennis by any stretch. Um <laughs> And you can have sort of fun with it. And it's sort of the way growing up watching, you know, ESPN coverage or even like Carillo and Pam Shriver. Tennis was always oh. remarkably just like fun. And there was something,
2: Ooh.
0: I don't know, that was never all that serious about it. And you guys seem to sort of be celebrating that sort of funness of tennis in a way that I definitely appreciate. Because that's how I fell in love with the sport was from the funness, not the, you know, the gravity of you know, uh, treat those two imposters the same or anything.
4: No. And I'm glad Victoria brought up telling stories that not everyone is telling, because I do feel that's part of the mission of the tennis Island is to try to shine a light on as much as we possibly can. And sometimes I think we do go back and forth. Where we feel like, Oh, should we be telling a story about Serena? Should we be telling a story about Maria or, or should we be doing a big force spread? And it just feels like we get a lot more, um, Happiness um, from covering A Lucas Puil or covering A Ossian or One of the you know a lot of French players uh-huh. and, um, Or covering the, the Simona Halep fan for this week for example We want to tell the stories that people Are aware of but they don't have necessarily The article to go to And we want to be that article for those people
0: Very cool if you got last thing if you guys Could change this is a question from Courtney She contributes what is one thing You would change about the WTA If you were a commissioner
3: Oh my.
4: I feel like I knew what my answer was going to be, but then I heard a little bit about um, it had to do with the naming of the tournaments. Mm-hmm. But then I heard that it actually there's something to do with sponsorship, and there's actually a reason why they're kind of named.
0: Well, they are going to change that. You mean like the Premier Five, Premier? Yes. Yeah, that is going to get changed apparently. that's
4: To something more
0: and Stacey probably, Allister stated distinct? Something that makes more sense because like Premier Mandatory, Premier Five, Premier International are all meaningless terms yes Utterly. I heard
4: it had something to do with if you make a tournament sound less prestigious that then they have difficulty oh,
0: I'm getting sure. sponsorships no, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's how it was yeah no, I'm sure that's how it was back in the tier 4 days I mean like when there were tier 1 tier 2 tier 3 tier 4 being tier 4 sounds terrible so
4: or tier 5 as, as I remember the tournament in um, Forest Hills being
0: did you ever go to that tournament
4: I never did because it was the same week as qualifying and yeah qualifying always comes before that was such a
0: weird tournament had a 16 player draw (gasps) it was bizarre it
3: it didn't even have any live scores or streaming until not even the last edition of it like it just died
0: the last day (laughs) um okay but if so if you could change so you're saying that would be your answer would be changing the
4: well that would be my answer but to the extent that it's going to be i'll I'll think of something else i'll let victoria
0: that's a reasonable answer that's not a bad answer victoria do you have one
3: I do. And I've said this on Twitter a bunch of times, but I think that if you are going to commentate on tennis, it should be mandatory that you sit and read a rule book before you go commentate on tennis. While that's not necessarily exclusive to the WTA with the grunting and hindrance and all the lovely buzzwords that I see on my timeline during Grand Slam time specifically, uh, I think it would be nice. And it would be a nice change of pace to the <sighs> narratives that we usually get during okay. Grand Slam time. There you go. Hot <laughs> that was cake. such a Victoria answer. That was nice. <laughs> scalding. Scalding <hot> take. <laughs>
4: I feel like most of my issues with the WTA TA almost have to do with how people how other people talk about the WTA. And I don't know okay. if that's anything the WTA can do about it. I just feel that like there is a cloud there tends to be of negativity that kind of follows it wherever it goes. I feel like we're we're on the cusp of breaking out from under that. I feel like this was almost like a five-year plan that we've been dealing with and we're about to kind of like explode, especially with a lot of the state of the WTA that we've been hearing in the last few months, a lot of exciting news. Um, so, you know, maybe we're on the precipice of a golden age and this will all be moot, but it just feels like there is a, particularly with being in the shadow of the big four, maybe that's the cloud I'm thinking of, just the comparison. And I wish people would kind of approach the two tours a little bit more separate and apart from, instead of always looking at the, the WTA as it compares to the ATP. Yeah,
0: because they are compared constantly and almost never and very frequently unfavorably often. You know, people are like, oh, the women get broken so much. And it was like, well, maybe the men just can't break.
4: Well, I've I've tried to reclaim that in terms and and refer to it as a hold of return. (laughs) I don't know how how popular that's gotten, but I too try to say like, oh, they've been exchanging holds of return. Who's going to break the return? And, um...
3: (laughs) Stats,
0: new stat. <laughs> it's pretty strong. That's well done. Well, thank, thank you guys, thank I you guys very play. much for for being on the show here. You are like two of the first like listeners, and you do actually listen to the show, who so we've had on. So we appreciate that, and hopefully you enjoyed listening to yourselves if you ever fired up episode ninety nine A. So thank this you.
4: Was- this was just so exciting, Ben. I felt like Simone Halp's number one fan, just to have this opportunity to speak to God's gift of journalism, just really, <laughs> my heart is open and flowing right now.
0: Oh, well, I think you just effectively assassinated this segment, so we're going to end it there. Thank you, guys. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Ben. We'll
0: see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys very much for listening to the show this week. As always, you can keep up with the show when you're not listening by following us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. If you have a question for an upcoming show, you can email it to us or any other thoughts, comments, feelings, whatever. Uh, you can send emails to no challenges remaining at gmail.com and you can subscribe to the show and get the episodes delivered to you instantly when they go up on Tuesdays. Um, by subscribing to us on iTunes or your RSS podcast, whatever app platform of choice and leave us reviews and iTunes and stuff. And we like that. And those are fun things to do. We're going to close as per usual with our rant rave segment. Courtney, anything got you feeling things this week?
1: <laughs> I have so many feels. Um, okay. I'm going to go ahead and just do my boyhood rant. Um, the Oscars just took place tonight on Sunday, uh, best, and it was pretty much coming down to, uh, Birdman. Or Boyhood, and and uh, as kind of the Oscar race continued as to which one was going to come out on top um, yeah. in the biggest awards, um, it was it was Birdman, a movie starring Michael Keaton, directed by Iñárritu, I can't remember his first name, uh, but uh, a great director and a very good movie. Um, that won Best Movie, it also or Best uh, Picture, it also won Best Direct, um, and I take issue with it, and not because. Birdman is a crap movie thankfully it's a good movie it's it's so in a way I'm probably less angry about this than I was Birdman's actually a good movie so that's I don't really have as much of an issue with it beating out boyhood in like just a visceral reaction I was way more angry about Pulp Fiction losing to Forrest Gump back in 94 or or brokeback losing to Crash, which is a steaming pile of pigeon shit um, oh. as a movie. Oh my gosh, Crash is like the worst movie. It is terrible. Forrest Gump. I don't like that one either. Um, but whatever. Um, but with this one, what was so disappointing about Boyhood not getting at least director for Relic later is just it just bums me out that the Academy kind of failed to recognize just what an artistic triumph. This movie was, and for those who don't know, the kind of whole "quote unquote" gimmick of the movie is that it was filmed over the course of twelve years, um, using the same boy from when he was young to when he turned eighteen, um, filming same kind whole cast, a, a
0: whole lot of people. Yeah, the same
1: whole cast: yeah. Patricia, Patricia Arquette, who won Best Supporting Actress, um, Ethan Hawke, uh as well. Um, so that's kind of the gimmick of the movie. It's a very quiet movie. Um, it's a very non-narrative movie. It doesn't really really tell a story. And that's what I think is so kind of beautiful about it. It's um because if you look at Hollywood films, right, and, and most movies and even Birdman, Birdman's a very big film. It's very big and kinetic and loud and there's screaming and um there's things happening and there's dramatic tension. Um and that, that's easy that that's the thing about it you make a movie and you build it around that and that impl- that applies to the 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 two other schlocky movies um the imitation game and a theory of everything like you know you can trace the dna of those movies back to a beautiful mind it's like oh look at this quirky dude who is a genius and has a tough life for different reasons and there's big things that happen, and there's World War II history here, and the theory of relativity over there, and it's massive, and boyhood was about not those moments, but it was about kind of like the other moments, the moments that we actually live in our lives, which is the daily kind of living, and the small moments in your life that in a lot of ways have just as much impact on you as these massive moments, and there are certain moments in boyhood that really could have gone the Hollywood way, there are these kind of big Moments where you almost expect, because we've been so trained by Boyhood or by Hollywood, to expect like, oh shit's about to go down. There's the drunken dad, and there's these kids like who look like they're about to kill themselves, being stupid and drunk, Um, you know, in this house, this old abandoned house. And you think something's going to happen, and nothing happens. Yeah. And it just moves on. And I think that those those small moments are just, I don't know, like really that he was able to Richard Linklater kind of craft this movie to do it the way he did to play with the concept of time to play with the concept of um, family and just growing up and what was really moving to me about boyhood thinking about it in retrospect is that I'm not first of all a guy I'm a girl I didn't grow up in Texas I grew up in California my parents aren't divorced uh, Mason's parents are divorced. I never had to be moved around all over the place, never had abusive dad, a lot. Of, I, there's no, nothing that I have in common with, with the story that's being told in boyhood at all. And yet somehow Richard Linklater was able to make it incredibly relatable
0: and really universal and, and really un,
1: exactly. And I find that to be an amazing achievement. And so I just think that it was really disappointing that, that, the, that he as a director, didn't get recognized for what he was able to pull off because the thing is, there can be another Birdman. There will never be another Boyhood. No one will ever make this movie again, and like that, in that in and of itself, deserved recognition for what Richard Linklater was able to do. And um, so yeah, I was just, I just, it, I'm sad about it. Like I, I just really, I'm not surprised that Hollywood went with Birdman. And again, it's not like super. I'm not mad about it because Birdman's great. But yeah, I, I just it's disappointing when you know that like there's this amazing work of art that's sitting there and it doesn't get recognized in the way that you want it to be recognized. And, you know, I mean, people, there's a great slate article about the whole thing, but it kind of compares it a little bit to, to Citizen Kane not getting best picture back in the day. And fact of the matter is like, I think that we will be talking about about boyhood in years to come. And I think it will inspire, you know, different ways of filmmaking and things like that. And so You know, it will live on, but I really wish that Richard Linklater got his Oscar.
0: You've, because you've been attached to that guy for
1: all the befores. Mm hmm. And Slacker and Dazed and Confused. I mean, I'm a big Richard Linklater fan, and it would, and I'm also a big Wes Anderson fan. So, like, it takes a lot for me to pick somebody other than Wes Anderson to win Best Director because Wes finally got nominated uh, for Grand Budapest Hotel, which we all know I love dearly.
0: And Grand Budapest cleaned up on a lot of the other categories. So, like a lot of the smaller design, design, yeah, yeah, design, all like those, any artistic category did really
1: well. It was a total pat on the head to like Wes Anderson, like, oh, we think your sets are adorable. Like, you know, which they are. Which they are. I mean, no argument. But I didn't expect Grand Budapest to do anything. Um, But yeah, I just, I really would have loved to see them split it either. I mean, really, honestly, I think that if you had to split them, I would have given Linklater best director and then given best picture to Birdman, although that makes me incredibly uncomfortable because Boyhood still is the best picture. But anyways, if you had to split it, that's how you would do it. I I just think that Richard Linklater deserves his 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 uh, a big academy pat on the back hug and high five for pulling off a movie that no one else could have made except for him.
0: There you go. I would rant about how long the Oscars are I watched the whole thing today at an Oscar party and they're just unbearably long, just way, way too long and so self-indulgent. But that's to kind of, you've already kind of covered the Oscar thing. So I was going to give a more of a rave because I feel like I've been ranty recently. So I'm going to inject some positivity and recommend this book that um, a friend of mine, Mary Plon, who used to work for the New York Times and I worked alongside at the US Open for the last couple years. Um, she just has a book coming out this month on Monopoly, which is a big passion of hers called The Monopolists, about the history of the board game and sort of the, all the stealing and false narratives about it that were created and the ideological things. And during this recent spate of snow and ice that we've had in D.C., I trekked out to her you know, reading and talk that she did with Stefan Fatsis, who's also written about board games who wrote a Scrabble book. So anyway, that's my very brief rave. Go buy Mary's book. She's a good writer, great storyteller, and it will be engaging and fun and just a super Americana, American story type thing because Monopoly is super, super American. Super so,
1: American, and I freaking love that game.
0: It's it's just like it has this, you can sort of, learning the how it got made, it's sort of amazing that this thing became this totally mainstream Item that's like ubiquitous in American households and childhoods, because its origin was essentially like was from this like single tax theory activists who wanted to show how like big business domination and aggregation of wealth were all like evils,
2: and it totally
0: evolved and mutated into this thing that's like greed destroying people yeah it's it's totally different so
1: totally as a kid from the 80s who grew up in like the wall street era like the movie wall street Uh um where you know greed is good greed is right um yeah monopoly was amazing because you really were like just trying to be a monopolist and it was awesome and it felt good
0: (laughs) yeah it totally feels good (laughs) and it was just like that's and that says so much about humanity maybe america more particularly but i think most cultures would have gone this way where if you have the choice like varying between like do the right thing and spread the wealth or like aggregate and win which makes for the more fun game it's definitely <laughs> definitely the aggregation so that's my pick monopolists nice. book. she's doing all sorts of press she'll be on npr a bunch this uh weekend she's going to seattle and portland and Stuff South by Southwest and back to New York. And so if you're in any of those cities and want to hear her talk about it, she's a, a great mind to pick. And so she's done tennis stuff. She was the one who like wrote oh, the story yeah. about Patrick McEnroe getting fired from the USTA um, or get lo- losing his title there um, and other stuff. So she has roots in tennis and loves mixed doubles and all sorts of things. Yeah. If you want to have a connection there to the sport that brought you to this podcast. So there you go.
1: When that's you, my, when, you rave. when you played Monopoly, Mm-hmm. Which were the properties you wanted? Like which Ooh. set of properties were like you're like I must have these?
0: I like sort of the things that are on the far end of the board. So like uh, the reds, mm-hmm. yellows, and
1: greens. Yeah, the so greens. Really. The greens are were money. the greens were money. I wanted the greens. So that, like Pennsylvania Avenue, I think was yeah, one sure. of them.
0: Yeah, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, and uh, the third one is Pacific. Yes, it was Pacific.
1: Yeah, those three. I mean, the yellows were great, too. But if you could get that that corner of the greens and the yellows, you didn't need boardwalk and park place and whatever. If you just had those three, those if you could nail those down, you were. Oh, that was the lockdown right there. That was the reason the Sherman Act was enacted was because of the (laughs) yellows and the greens.
0: Exactly. So there you go. And did you know that like the the streets that were all named from streets in Atlantic City, New Jersey, were all based on like economic situations at the time. So like the poorest and it was a fairly segregated city at the time. So like it goes in more into the Americana, so like it's all in the book. But like the so like the black neighborhoods, Atlantic City, were like Baltic and Mediterranean.
2: Oh.
0: So when you look at it that way, it's like more, it's like, ugh, but still That's super awkward. enlightening <laughs> and American and Ameri- <laughs> an American and that. But it was you know accurate on some of those were where the lowest property values were and all that stuff. So I just think it's that a, I, pretty, it's a pretty cool story, and so yeah,
1: check it. Out. I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to read that. Seeing as how I loved playing Monopoly, and then I grew up to be an antitrust lawyer.
0: There you go, it's <laughs> perfect for you. And with that we'll leave it. We're gonna we're gonna end with the song uh from boyhood at the end.
1: Yeah. Which is also, also by one of our favorite bands.
0: Yes, Arcade Fire. So
1: it'll mope mopily
0: feel feel sad the boyhood didn't win as you listen to this. But feel excited that we'll be having episode one hundred coming up soon. But not next. <laughs> soon. <laughs> Later guys.
1: Tchau, tchau.